Hey, AJ, how you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm all right. Your Broncos lost 70 to 20. How you feeling? That's like a number that when you hear it out loud, I, I can't even really fathom that. You know, I've been a Broncos fan. We, we talked about my sort of pathetic devotion to them last time. Uh, but I cannot remember watching a game that bad ever. And I think historically it was one of their worst games. Maybe in the NFL history. I don't know. But that was terrible. Is this your breaking point? No, never. Is this enough abuse for you? No, no. Um, they they will take my money um, and I will keep giving it to them. But this is really rough. Um, you know, I, I saw I, I follow a discord group or I'm part of a discord group that talks about Broncos game as they're going on. And uh, someone was like, they're going to put 70 on us. And I was like, yeah, come on. But lo and behold, they could have done more. That's the thing. They stopped. They uh, they could have got, set the record, but they didn't. All right. Well, speaking of point, putting points on the board, we're going to be talking about some ransomware attacks on some Vegas casinos today and the youth cybercrime groups that are out there going after the casinos. We've got an interview on today's show with uh, Kashmir Hill, the journalist, about her new book on facial recognition. Welcome to Safe Mode. I'm Elias Grohl, Senior Editor at CyberScoop. Every week, we break down the most pressing issues in technology, provide you the knowledge and the tools to stay ahead of the latest threats, and take you behind the scenes of the biggest stories in cybersecurity. An attack is coming. It's about keeping us safe. He's just a disgruntled hacker. She's a super hacker. Stay alert. Stay safe. Stay safe. This is Safe Mode. My name is Elias Grohl. I'm the host of CyberScoop. AJ Vicence, CyberScoop reporter. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. All right. So in recent weeks, casinos and resorts in Vegas have gotten hit by ransomware groups. And the group behind them are a bunch of kids, it turns out. What have you learned about this crew that's hitting the casinos? So we don't know exactly who was hands-on keyboard for this whole operation. And obviously... Uh, there's a lot more that's going to come out about this, especially given the high profile nature of the targets. But from what people can tell and the researchers that are paying attention to this, um, at least part of this operation involved kids, essentially, out of a ecosystem that refers to itself as the COM, which is short for community. But this is a an ecosystem that's made up of a bunch of subgroups and, and little splinter uh, units um, that's kind of loosely organized. They they bicker with each other, they fight, they feud, but they also learn from each other um, and they engage in all sorts of nefarious activity, which I'm sure we can get into. But yeah, it's, it's pretty incredible when you think about uh, companies as major as Caesars Entertainment and MGM Resorts um, getting, getting owned in this way by them. So these are young people on the internet. They're mostly native English speakers, right? Right. So it's believed that many of them are in the US, which is interesting, um, or the UK. You think about the way that their English is is spoken and written, and that's a key part of this, right? So a, a big part of their success as attackers is via social engineering, where they essentially talk help desks and other sort of gatekeepers into handing over access to uh, privileged networks and 
and portals, those sorts of things. But yeah, the, the, the fact that they know English so well, so smooth, but they also know the sort of cultural context, right? They know what buttons to push. They know how to talk to people. They know how to, uh, you know, convince their way through this stuff. And they're incredibly effective uh, social engineers. So, so kind of talk us through how they're they're running these these social engineering attacks on places like casinos, which you'd think would have some pretty serious security precautions in place, and yet these kids are able to get into their system to the point where they're able to cripple the operations of an entire hotel, shut down an entire casino floor. How are they doing this? So I think when a lot of us think of casinos, right, we think of like Ocean's Eleven and... Uh, oh, for these... sure. I've got <laughs> images of Brad Pitt eating chips on the casino floor plotting. Yeah, I mean... The, As I'm we thinking think of, of this. We, we, yeah, we think of elaborate... These guys are not that. They're not that. <laughs> um, but you could argue, right, they're more effective in some ways uh, because they... They do this all sort of virtually and digitally, and, and they don't have to be there. But nevertheless, they gain uh, similar or even more levels of access. So casinos generally, uh, right, they're, they're very used to protecting physical assets and physical access. They're very, very good at things like security. Um, they've got cameras everywhere. They've got people monitoring uh, the cards in your hand, and they know if you're counting cards or doing all sorts of things. They're very good at security in that sense. Um, where they are less good, and, and this really applies to a lot of major corporations, right, is when it comes to human beings and accessing networks, you know, you might be an employee and you need to say you're on a trip and you forgot your, your, your fob that has a two-factor token. And so you call the help desk, hey, I really need to get my email. Um, what do I need to tell you to, to have you reset my password or that kind of thing? So you know, they, they might have a few questions to verify your identity, but if you know enough about a person, um, and, and sadly, so many of us share many, many details of our lives online, um, our, our children's names, our pets' names, uh, our birthdays are readily, readily findable, but there's also sort of gobs of leaked data out there about all of us, uh, and it's not that hard to find. So if you really, really wanted to find information on people, you can find it. And once you know uh, a significant degree of personally identifiable information about somebody, then you go to that help desk or the IT desk and say, I need to reset my password. I need to uh, access my, my email account. Um, and then at that point, once they reset and you're in, then you can sort of target other people with that email address. Um, and, you know, Another layer of all of this, right, is these these companies that sort of as sort of authentication layers and providers and security services, essentially. And if you can compromise them or their a corporation's access to that account, then all of a sudden you have access to reset a lot of accounts or to get into a more privileged account at that point. And, you know, it's off to the races. Right. One thing that I find interesting about this group is that it's it's an online community that's behind a lot of these attacks that the individuals themselves they might be kind of like the the proverbial kid like sitting in their mom's basement right but they're part of 
a group of online, like an online community that is very much shaping their behavior. I'm wondering if you could tell folks a little bit about the culture of this community, kind of things that are they talking about and how are they talking about things? How do they see the world? So it's like um, any sort of ecosystem when you have kids and young adults, right? I mean, especially when we're talking about the online context, uh, you know, there's many, many people that are probably swimming around in that ecosystem that aren't nefarious or bad, but they like edgy material, jokes, content. Um, they hang out on Telegram or, or Discord servers and, and just talk about video games or whatever. But there's a, a subset, a significant subset of these types of people that are into, you know, bad things, uh, crime. Uh, and they are... Over the years, there's been more and more reporting and uh, information from law enforcement sources about what's going on in some of these groups. Um, You know, and it's not just, uh, you know, hijinks or pranks. I mean, these are truly violent uh, groups that they do things like uh, violence as a service. Um, You can pay someone to throw a brick through a window. You can pay someone to shoot at somebody. You can... Uh, you know, swatting is a big problem, right? Where you, you know, you sort of get authorities to show up to a certain location, guns drawn as if an emergency is going on and they might uh, kick in a door and point guns at people and, you know, people get hurt this way. And, you know, for 50 bucks, you could pay someone to, to have that happen, right? And so these these people are organizing in this way and it sort of escalates, right? It's kind of like, I had a researcher recently tell me that it's like this idea of, you know, kids that get radicalized online or or anybody that get radicalized online. They're, you know, we think of this a lot in sort of the, maybe the terrorism context or the racism context, but in this case, it's cybercrime. And as you sort of get more and more radicalized, it you realize there's more and more money in, in the increasingly serious crimes. And that's, that's, then you get into things like cyber intrusions, which is a term that an FBI agent used in a charging document earlier this year, uh, or extortion. And then once you're at that level, right, you know, these, these international ransomware gangs, they know what's going on in these groups. They need English speaking people to help them out. Um, and so they might uh, work with or, or pluck some of these kids out and say, Hey, you want to make some real money? Uh, let's work together. And in this case, you know, once you get to that level, you're, you're really talking about some super serious international cybercrime. Um, it's, it's kind of interesting. We wrote a story recently about this and some of the response on Twitter was, you know, you're, you're talking about these kids. You, you, it's like that old Simpsons meme, old man shakes fist at cloud. Um, (laughs) but these the point is that these young people get dismissed because they're you know they say racist things they're misogynist they they are kind of ridiculous when you watch how they talk to each other but nevertheless they are pulling off intrusions and accesses that are you know that rival this most serious apt groups out there and you know like a researcher told me if you sort of set aside the circus show the the result is 
incredibly serious. And as we've seen with MGM and Caesars and, you know, companies before that, uh, Microsoft, NVIDIA, Samsung, Okta, this is tens of millions of dollars in, you know, certainly in response time and, and bad PR, but also in extortions. I mean, this is incredibly serious activity and, you know, I can't even really sort of communicate how how intense that sort of world is, but it's almost like a world that exists and most of us don't even think about it. Um, you know, the one thing I'll say too is that there was a there was an alert from the FBI earlier this month actually about what they called violent online groups. They don't name the com specifically, but this is what they're talking about. And so, just reading from the notice, they're saying. Uh, violent online groups deliberately targeting minor victims on publicly available messaging platforms to extort them into recording or live streaming acts of self-harm and producing child sexual abuse material. You know, that's to go with threats, blackmail, manipulation. Uh, it, it's So if we sort of circle back to this idea that these are just kids and this is kind of funny, you know, there's really nothing sort of funny about it, right? This is incredibly serious. And so you're mixing that with high-level cybercrime and, you know, it's it's really heading in a terrible direction. Yeah. And once these kids are playing at that level of, you know, getting linked up with bigger international criminal groups, like these are groups that are sponsored by Russian intelligence where, you know, American kids hanging out online are suddenly plugged into an ecosystem that has ties to intelligence organizations. It just, the, the speed of escalation once you start going deeper into this world is, is a, bit, uh, is a bit, bit staggering. But thanks for your reporting on this, AJ, and we'll definitely be talking about these guys more. So thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Up next on Safe Mode, we've got an interview with Kashmir Hill, the investigative journalist, about her new book, Your Face Belongs to Us, her investigation of the facial recognition industry, and how privacy is increasingly being threatened by technology that has the ability to pluck a face out of any image and tell you who it is. That's up next. This is Tanya Riley with CyberScoop. We have with us today Kashmir Hill, a journalist at the New York Times and author of the book, Your Face Belongs to Us, A Secretive Startup's Quest and Privacy as We Know It. It's a book about Clearview AI, a small company that gave facial recognition to law enforcement, billionaires, and businesses, threatening to end privacy as we know it. But this is also a story of the surveillance state, the hubris of scientists, and the reach of Silicon Valley. Kashmir, thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. So I have to say, this book had me completely hooked from the beginning. You kind of start out with this almost spy thriller tone of trying to track down this mysterious company while realizing that they might actually be watching you back. So tell us how you got started reporting on Clearview AI. Uh, so this story started a few years ago for me. I got a tip that seemed too crazy to be true, a uh, public records researcher uh, contacted me and said that he had been sending out public records requests to law enforcement agencies around the country about what facial recognition technologies they were using. And, you know, police have been using facial recognition for decades now, uh, but they typically rely on government databases of, you know, mugshots and in some cases, uh, driver's license photos. But what this 
company that he discovered claimed to be doing. Uh, they said they had scraped billions of photos from the public web, including social media sites, to create a facial recognition app that worked with something like 99% accuracy. And I remember this tipster, his name's Freddie Martinez. He uh, lives in D.C., works for a nonprofit there. He said they've crossed the Rubicon on facial recognition technology. So one of the things I, I thought was really interesting about Clearview's story is, so as you report, giants like Facebook and Google had already been developing this kind of technologies for years earlier, basically, and decided to hold off on releasing it because even, you know, Facebook and Google thought this is too risky. But here comes Clearview AI, and it's willing to do what these big tech companies wanted. What made Clearview poised to do what these other, you know, tech giants just wouldn't dare to do? Yeah, so this is actually, it took me a while to learn this. When I first heard about Clearview AI and started reaching out to experts, everybody was shocked that a company had done this, uh, really taken aback, uh, you know, said, you know, something must happen about this company. But most people thought it was a technological breakthrough. And what I have learned since then, you know, working on the book, working on other stories for The New York Times, is that it was really an ethical breakthrough that, you know, companies like Facebook and Google had developed technology like this internally and decided it was too dangerous to release. Meanwhile, Clearview AI was this kind of ragtag group of entrepreneurs, um, not your kind of typical Silicon Valley startup. And they just wanted to, you know, have success, make money. And they were willing to cross lines that other companies hadn't been willing to cross. And a big part of that ragtag group is Clearview AI CEO founder, Wonton Tat. This book is very much a story about him as well. He's this very kind of eccentric character. One of your sources say he's a main character in search of an author, which I thought was a very kind of apt description you know, why was it important to tell his story as well? And, you know, what kind of role did he play in Clearview coming to be this tech giant? So Juan Tantat, a uh, pretty young guy, uh, you know, as, as is typical with a lot of Silicon Valley founders, uh, at night, he grew up in Australia and at 19 years old, dropped out of college and moved across the world uh, to Silicon Valley, kind of drawn there by the promise of making it in the tech industry. And he really floundered there for a number of years, just kind of hopping onto the latest tech trend. You know, when he first got there, Facebook was blowing up. It was, uh, you know, the 2007-2008 era where the platform had opened to third-party developers and you could just get a ton of users really quickly with like stupid quizzes. And so that's what he made. And then the iPhone hit the market and he started making iPhone games and would make iPhone apps. I think the, the, the one I always think of is he made an app called Trump Hair, where you could just add uh, Trump's, you know, signature coif to your own pictures. And yeah, he just like nothing was really catching. He got into a bit of trouble with a YouTube clone he made. It was called Video and uh, was trying to make it go viral by using access given to him by users to their uh, their chat credentials to basically spam their friends and say, check out Video with a link. And so he uh, it spread so quickly that basically the whole internet was freaking out about it being a phishing scam or a worm. And so he had this, this kind of, uh, he ended up with this Google 
footprint that said he was a hacker that created a worm. And that really created problems for him later in his life. And, you know, we're kind of jumping from from Trump hair to 2016. We know from the book that 2016 is a really important kind of nexus for the company. It's when he meets a lot of the players that, that go on to be really important to its founding. And really, we kind of see a shift in his character as well, which, um, you know, not to jump ahead too much in the book, it seems like he's kind of pulled back from that world a little bit. But why, what's the importance of the 2016 election to Clearview's story? Yeah, so when Juan Tontap first got to San Francisco, he kind of fell in with the liberal crowd. You know, he let his hair grow long. He was playing guitar, you know, when he wasn't coding, you know, hanging out with musicians and artists. And then at some point, he really fell in with a conservative crowd online and started kind of communicating with and hanging out with a lot of alt-right characters. And he would tell me later that he essentially got radicalized by the Internet. And this was going into the decision to make Trump the candidate uh, in the making Trump the presidential candidate in the 2016 election. And so he ends up meeting a guy named Charles Johnson, who might be better known as Chuck, Chuck Johnson. And he is kind of like a conservative provocateur, ran some, you know, pretty far right news sites um, where kind of he liked to rile up liberals and kind of push a conservative agenda. And so Ch- Charles Johnson invites Wonton Tat to come to the Republican National Convention where Trump is being crowned the candidate for the party. And so um, Juan went there and Peter Thiel, you know, the famous investor, is one of the people who's talking there. And Chuck Johnson knows him and they they go and they meet Thiel and they're hanging out, they're talking and this moment, the Republican National Convention, is the place that Clearview seems to have really grown um, or the, the idea for it was sparked because, Charles Johnson says, they talked about, wouldn't it be nice with all these people around, all these strangers, if we had some kind of app we could use to scan someone's face and get information about them? And it was really, um, that was a pivotal moment. And it was after that, that Charles Johnson in, um, introduced Wonton Tat to this guy, Richard Schwartz, who's a few decades older than them, who had worked in the Rudy Giuliani, um, uh, Rudy Giuliani mayoral office, you know, uh, back in the early 2000s. And the three of them begin hatching you know, a tool to judge strangers that eventually will become Clearview AI. One of my favorite anecdotes from the book is, I think it's, you know, years later at an investor party or something, and Peter Thiel is like, oh, I'm invested in that? I had no idea. Um, You know, we think of him as this very kind of um, involved character in a lot of things, but in this case, it seems like he was actually on the periphery of the story. Yeah, so Peter Thiel ended up giving them $200,000. He was the first investor in what was then called Smart Checker and later will be called Clearview AI. It would not exist without him. And yeah, I mean, it was funny because another investor who invested later met Thiel and asked it, like showed him Clearview AI and he claimed to be surprised by it. And it just made me think that for Teal, you know, giving out $200,000 to a startup is like, uh, you know, uh, buying a latte or something. Uh, 
Exactly. So Clearview's big breakthrough is really when it starts to get these police contracts, starting with the NYPD. I want to step back a little bit because one of my favorite things about this book is how well it contextualizes Clearview AI in the history of policing and facial recognition and surveillance. I'm curious for you, you know, knowing this history now and doing all this reporting, does facial recognition as a technology exist without the police state? Does it get to where it is now? Well, it was interesting tracing, you know, the very, the roots of facial recognition technology. And it went back to, you know, the late 1950s, early 1960s, when the CIA is giving funding to uh, engineers in what is not Silicon Valley yet. It hasn't been named Silicon Valley, but it's the area that will become that. And it's because they want a computer that's able to recognize a human being. Um, And they didn't have a lot of initial success. It took decades to get anywhere near what we have today. But it the big push has been both from industry, a number of different companies who basically have wanted to create a technology that watches you while you watch TV. Um, they really want to know who is consuming that content. And so it was that combined with this really great desire by the government to have a better way of identifying us by face and, and tracking us and solving, solving crimes using this technology. And I think this book really raises some interesting questions about the responsibility of scientists in this surveillance state. Um, You know, Clearview AI, you talk about how really it was built on the shoulders of decades of research, specifically some open source research where basically the creator's only safeguard was politely asking people not to misuse it. Um, you, you write at one point about these scientists involved in kind of the history of facial recognition. They yearn to make computers ever more powerful without reckoning with the full scope of the consequences. Now we have to live with the results. Did you come away with any, I guess, broader conclusions about what the scientific or technological community could do different going forward or, or where the responsibility lies with researchers? I was really struck by this concept of technical sweetness. And this is this uh, human desire to do what can be done, you know, to to solve a puzzle, to make a give a computer a challenge and help it solve it. And I just found talking to all of these early researchers that they just, you know, it was a very hard problem of getting a computer to be able to recognize the human face, given how changeable it is in terms of its expression, you know, uh, facial hair, glasses, hats, lighting. They kind of all thought, honestly, that it was an impossible challenge for, for decades. And so because they thought it was impossible, they weren't really thinking about, well, what happens if they get really scary good. Um, and that surprised me, honestly, just to that they kind of weren't thinking about ultimately where this could go and what that means for everybody. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, I guess what I came away with is that I think we need to, um, I think that the kind of engineering and science community needs to reckon with the meaning of what they're doing earlier on in the process uh, because uh, it's easier to develop the guardrails as the technology is developing rather than when it's already out there. And that's really what happened with facial recognition technology. You know, they 
it, it didn't need guardrails because it just didn't work that well. It was really flawed in the early days. You know, after after September 11th, there was this really big push to start rolling it out in airports. Um, and one of the vendors who was doing that told me, yeah, like it didn't work. We knew it didn't work, but it was very useful to be able to gather training data. Another vendor told me, well, it did work pretty well, but we actually had to pull out of a project in South Africa because it failed utterly on people that had uh, darker skin. And, and so instead of creating guardrails for what they thought was a flawed technology, uh, we, we just didn't create any rules. And then the technology in the meantime got got much better. I want to talk a little bit about the concerns with facial recognition technology itself. Um, you, you raise an interesting point in the book, and it's something I think a lot about as a reporter covering this, but one of the you know primary criticisms of the technology has been that it doesn't work as well in darker skin tones or, or non-male faces, but we've seen the technology actually get a, a lot better in the years since those complaints were initially raised. And, you know, you spoke with one activist who said, you know, maybe the advocacy community is led by its chin by focusing on a fixable problem versus the broader problems here. So, you know, what are the broader problems with facial recognition and, and what does criticism of it look like going forward? Yeah, I mean, it's disturbing how long this was a problem that wasn't fixed while it was being deployed in real world situations. You know, to have a technology that is known to fail on certain groups, uh, you know, like people of color, women, it doesn't work. It didn't work as well in women as men, children and older people, um, basically non-white men. It just, you know, had definite flaws. And the fact that we were rolling it out and using it is just incredibly disturbing. Um, but the vendors did take the criticism to heart. And one of the solutions was having a more diverse training set. And so that has helped the technology improve quite a bit. And so the problem now is that a lot of the facial recognition vendors can say, okay, well, we're much more accurate now. So we solved that problem and let's roll this out. And that ignores this whole other criticism that activists have of, you know, how chilling is this for our civil liberties? You know, is it appropriate that anytime a crime is committed, all of us that are in a database that's searched are considered as the perpetrator for that crime. Um, and that really has been a problem. Even with, you know, the more accurate technology, we are still seeing people falsely arrested for the crime of looking like somebody else. Yet Clearview is more popular than ever, right? <laughs> Clearview. So, you know, the world did not know about Clearview AI for the most part until my first article came along about them in January 2020. Uh, and, you know, they have now been used by thousands of law enforcement agencies um, around the country, you know, they around the country and around the world, though there has been more of a backlash to Clearview AI outside of the United States. And it really has caused them to stop doing business um, outside of the U.S. for the most part. Um, but, yeah, they have contracts with the FBI, with the Department of Homeland Security um, and even though people have a lot of concerns about the company, they are, they're still, they're, they're still going. Mm -hmm. They're still building their database. When I wrote my first article about them, 
they had something like a billion faces in their database. They now have 30 billion faces. And that's more than the number of people on the planet. So it means they have a lot of faces for each of the people in their database. So I know there was maybe one victory for, for privacy activists in the U.S. when it comes to Clearview. The, the, AI, the ACLU kind of had a big victory um, in Illinois getting uh, the kind of getting the company to agree to not give its facial database um, to private entities. It looks like they're actually going to settle a different lawsuit under Illinois' biometric privacy law soon. Can you tell us a little bit about both the Illinois law and how it fits into the Clearview story and, you know, maybe what regulation in the U.S. looks like in the future? Yeah, something that was really interesting to me working on this book is that the amount of kind of control or privacy you have around your face depends on where you live. Um, the rules are are different from place to place. And so, uh, out you know, in Europe, they have stronger privacy laws, and they've said that what Clearview is doing is illegal. They you know, The privacy regulators have not, though, managed to get Europeans' faces out of the database. Um, and then in the U.S., there's just three states really that have been kind of fighting back against Clearview AI in some in some way. That's Vermont, California, and then the big one is Illinois. Because Illinois passed this very prescient law in 2008, the Biometric Information Privacy Act, that says you can't use someone's face print without their consent if you're a company. Um, and this has caused a lot of problems for a lot of companies. Facebook agreed to a $650 million settlement in Illinois over their decision to roll out um, photo tagging software that would, you know, that would put a name to your friends' faces. And so Clearview has been kind of sued uh, a couple of times now under this law. ACLU sued them in state court and reached a settlement with Clearview AI, where Clearview said, okay, we will not sell our software to private companies. We won't sell them this big database we've collected. But the settlement did still allow Clearview to operate and work with law enforcement agencies. Um, so that is, that's actually been kind of controversial in the legal community. They, some people think the ACLU should have gone to trial instead of settling. Um, but I think they did what they saw as being in the best interest of their clients. And now there's another uh, federal lawsuit, a class action lawsuit that's seeking money from Clearview. Because when you violate this Illinois law, you are supposed to pay people $5,000 every time you use their Facebook print without consent. And so that could be that could be a lot of money for Clearview. It could bankrupt the company, but it depends on um, how they settle the suit. And they, uh, the, the, the people in the case have told the judge, we've reached a settlement, but we don't know yet what that, what that number is. I want to talk more broadly about the future looking implications of this technology existing and being in the hands of God knows who, I guess. Um, you know, you tweeted recently about this article um, outing a candidate in Virginia as a sex worker. It was from a political oppo researcher. You know, this woman had been streaming anonymously. Her account wasn't tied to her name at all. It seems like maybe facial recognition was at play in, in how this uh, researcher was able to figure out, you know, this woman's history. Is that what the future of this technology looks like? Should we all be very terrified? Yeah, we don't know in that case yet whether the Republican operative who found this woman's um, 
the uh, online sex work, whether facial recognition technology was, was used or not, but it would definitely be a way that something like that could be found. And it was on a website called Chatterbait. Uh, and I was looking over the Chatterbait's uh, terms of service and privacy policy. And they basically warn people, you know, don't don't put anything on this site that has your name, your real name. You know, use a username that's anonymous. Um, don't don't provide anything that could tie back to your real identity. And that, frankly, ignores the state of facial recognition technology right now. You know, if somebody has a picture of your face, they can find other photos of you that are online. If they've been scraped by a company like Clearview AI, um, if they're law enforcement or a site like PimEyes, which is a public face search engine that anyone can use and you just pay a subscription and yeah, you put somebody's face in and it'll pull up all these photos along with links to where they appear. Um, so right now it, it is really feeling like it's a free for all out there in terms of what can be done with this technology. And, you know, there's this question, are we going to claw it back? Are we going to create some real rules? You know, do we have a right to not have our faces be in these databases without our consent? So is there anything right now that listeners can do to, I guess, guard themselves from this technology or are we just kind of out of luck? So this advice may surprise you, but, you know, given that these face search engines are out there, I kind of feel that people should use them to see how exposed they are, that it's a good idea to do a search of your own face just to know what's on the internet. And maybe if there's content out there that you don't want, you should try to get it taken down, knowing that other people might be able to find it that way. Um, at the same time, that means, you know, handing over your face to do the search, which some people might not be comfortable with. Um, I would say people should really think about the photos that you put publicly online, you know, knowing that they could be found this way. Don't assume that just because you don't have your name attached to something, uh, that it won't be findable. And if you live in one of those, one of those places where you do have more rights around your face, take advantage of them. You can go and get, you know, Clearview AI, PimEyes to delete your face from their databases. If you live in Europe or if you live in California, a state that has a right to access and delete your data, you can actually put in a request to Clearview AI, to PimEyes, to sites like this, as long as they honor the law and say, delete me from your database. So I would encourage listeners in those places to consider that. Well, that is great advice. Um, I want to close with you You talk in the book about how this technology could open a door for things like voice search engine or even a search engine for how you walk. Do you think that's an inevitability? So what Clearview AI did was take advantage of information that was in the public comments and, you know, used powerful AI to make it searchable. And I could definitely imagine this happening with other with with other information about us, particularly voice. Like I could imagine somebody creating a voice database and you upload 30 seconds of someone talking and it searches through, you know, all the recordings it has and looks for anywhere else they've been talking. Um, we could have we could imagine this happening in the real world, you know, assembling genetic databases based on some Clearview AI like company that goes and starts collecting, you know, uh, thrown out food in people's trash cans or starts 
or starts, you know, buying hair clippings for from hairstylists. Um, right now, we really do not have robust laws to protect our personal information from creating these kinds of vast databases. Um, and so unless this changes, unless we really do see some AI regulations come into place, some rules put around what can be scraped, what can be used, I do think we will see other types of Clearview AIs that, that really threaten our notion of privacy and the control we have over our personal data. Kashmir Hill, thank you for joining us. Any other thoughts you want to leave our audience with? Stay safe out there. Thanks so much, Tanya, for inviting me to talk about the book. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Safe Mode, a weekly podcast on cybersecurity and digital privacy brought to you by CyberScoop. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and a review and share it with your friends, your mom, your dad. Nobody wants to get hacked. To find out more information or to contact me, your host, please visit cyberscoop.com.